We're going to continue our verse-by-verse Bible study through the book of Acts. And just to kind of start out with a question, I want to ask you guys, how many of you guys understand that there is a difference between living religiously for God, okay, and living relationally with God? Do you guys, have you guys come to understand that there is a difference? Thank you for raising your hand, by the way. All right. If you haven't, I don't know. This is something some people don't understand. And so it's something that we're going to talk about today. And it's really important um, because how you view that, let's just say your your relationship with God, your, your Christianity, your faith, how you view your faith, like whether you view it in the context of it's just, you know, religiously living for God or relationally living with him will affect something we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, like how faithful you are or how how well you're able to live with God doing the things that he has for you so you can experience everything, all the blessing he has for your life. It will affect that, okay? Let me just give you a little example. Like looking at one thing, one example of ministry for the Lord. Let's look at let, um, children's ministry. So for somebody that would look at you know, my life following Jesus is just about making sure I do what he says. You know, I'm, I'm living religiously for God. It, that person might look at children's ministry as childcare. Okay, well, this is church. We go to church. There's children there. Children need to be taken care of. I'm going to do that. Okay. Now, here's the problem with looking at it that way or something that can end up being a discouragement is that If I'm being honest, I don't always like taking care of my own kids. So why am I going to want to take care of your kids? Okay, that's how I can feel sometimes. If it's just childcare, I'm not always going to feel like taking care of kids. And therefore, it's going to be something that is not fun, is not exciting, can be a drag. And, and, And that is not like when you're, I don't know about you, but when we're reading through the book of Acts, that's not how following Jesus is supposed to look. I see excitement. I see enthusiasm. I see cool things happening. Now, if we understand that we're in a relationship with God, how we might look at children's ministry is, oh, well, I know that God really loves these kids. Jesus makes it a point to say, don't ever prevent them from coming to me. Like, bring them to me. And I know that the most important thing from my own experience and growing up without Jesus for 20 years, and, and then growing and knowing him and seeing how much he changed in my life, I know that the most important thing that these kids can understand at the youngest age is how much God loves them and how he wants to be a critical part of their everyday life. And there's nothing more important than understanding that and understanding he's there with them and they can know him and, and trust him to lead them. And would you know it? He's chosen me to be his mouthpiece so that I can partner with him and speak his very words to these kids so they know just how much he cares about them and all the great plans for them. There's a big difference there because that's exciting. And that's what God intends for us. And like I said, how you view your relationship with God is really going to affect how you view the ministry he has for you in his life and living for him, all right? And in today's text... We're going to see a church that appears to kind of be dealing with these issues, dealing with what I call 
legalism in that they've believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, okay? They've placed their faith in him, but they're still struggling with thinking that works or what they do in their life somehow affects how God views them in in his eyes. Like basically what they do makes them better in God's eyes in some way. And that focus on the law or legalism leads to them being legalistic towards others instead of being loving towards others as God calls us. Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said that they know that you're his disciples by how many good things you do. Is that what he said? No. He said they know you're his disciples by what? Your love for one another. Okay, so that's important. And this is something that should really be relatable to us because if you're being honest with yourself, even if we get the, uh, we understand the theology of justification by faith, we understand that we can't save ourselves. There's no good thing you can do that it's all by the blood of Jesus on the cross that, that atoned or paid for our sins. Even if we get that, how many of you have come to realize that you still have this tendency in your flesh to want to drift back to like, okay, if I do this, then I'm good with Jesus. If I don't do this, I'm not good with Jesus. You know, like we, we drift back to this do's and don'ts, checking boxes and letting that dictate how our relationship with God is going when really your relationship can't change. If you place your faith in Jesus, it couldn't be, you couldn't be any more right in his eyes. It doesn't affect your rightness before him. It might affect how close you feel with him, like what you're doing. But it doesn't affect your rightness. And so that's really important for us to understand. So we should pay attention to the chapter today. So we're going to be in Acts 21. Went through verses 10 through 16 last week. And if you guys remember, Paul, his companions, they're going to Jerusalem. He continues to get these warnings from the believers that, hey, don't go. Well, Basically what the warnings are that you're going to face persecution there. The believers add to that and say, don't go because it's going to be hard. But he's adamant that God is calling him to go to Jerusalem. And so he's going anyways, all right? And so we left off last week with him arriving there. So let me pray one more time for a blessing on God's word, and then we'll start going through it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, Lord, we just want to settle our hearts. We don't want to be distracted. We don't want to be thinking about other things because we know that every single word in this book that you inspired is from you. And if it's from you, it's all important. And it's brought in us so much joy and peace. I like how Peter says, you have the words of life. It's brought in us life. It's, it's explained us how to truly experience life in a relationship with you. And so therefore, we, we want to listen. We want to receive. We want to be the good soil that you talk about where the, the seeds of the word planted are planted in us and the roots run deep and we we what comes out of it are fruitful vines lord so that we can experience everything you have for us so lord really may we just be ready with attentive ears attentive minds ready to hear what it is the holy spirit wants to say to us so that we leave here not just hearers and agreeers but doers of your word lord and experience the blessedness that comes with that. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse 17, we're going to go through verses 17 through 36. So verse 17 says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, 
And all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So Paul and his companions, they get to Jerusalem, the mothership of the church, if you will. This is where Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit came down and it all spread out from there. And they're greeted by the believers there and they go to see James. Remember, James is one of the apostles. He was the half-brother of Jesus and the rest of the church leadership in Jerusalem is there. And the first thing they do is they share about the mission trip they went on. They share about all the cool things God was doing with the Gentiles in the different places they were visiting, all the Gentiles that were being saved. And we see another example of something I talked about last week here in verse 19. Remember where I was talking about how it's really important who we're presenting in ministry. And we talked about how Paul was somebody that always made sure God got all the glory for everything that was being done through him in his faithfulness to God, right? He didn't take any credit for himself. He understood there's nothing special about me. And what does he say here in verse 19? Who was doing this work? God had done this work, right? Which again, this is I'm harping on this because this is really important for us to understand because it removes the pressure of us trying to do things that we aren't capable of and therefore we're never expected to do by God. And as such, our lack of abilities don't ever become a hindrance or a discouragement from you doing things God's asking you to doing, but rather an encouragement for us to put our faith and look to God to help us do the things that we acknowledge that we could never do in our own power. Amen? That's why it's important to understand that we are weak. Because what Paul says in 2 Corinthians twelve nine is, in your weakness, he will be strong. He will show you, he will show his strength so he can be glorified and people can see him in your life. And those that don't know him can come to know him and those that do know him can be encouraged. And that's exactly what happens here, right? It doesn't say the believers at hearing Paul's testimonies glorify Paul. Who do they glorify? Verse 20, they glorified God or they praise God. And that's one of the reasons why I firmly believe that from time to time, we have people come up here and share testimonies of their lives, of what God's doing in them or how God saved them. That's why when we have missionaries visit, like Hassan a couple weeks ago, we have them come up and share of all God's doing because inevitably it will encourage us or leave us in a place of glorifying or praising God at hearing the things he's doing in other people's lives because testimonies are the proof of how real God is, okay? That we all need to be reminded of sometimes, all right? Even myself, I got to say my testimony to remind myself of how real God is in my life because sometimes I can just get in this mindset of like, is he even here? Is he doing anything? And I got to remind myself. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, faith shows the reality of, of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. But testimonies are the proof of that we can are the proof that we can see of God doing exactly what he says he's going to do in his word. Yes, amen. I think of it like fishing, okay? Here's the thing. Dylan, where are you? This will this will right, okay? If I didn't have faith that what I was doing was going to lead me to catching some fish, I wouldn't go fishing, right? I have to have faith in order to go try fishing. Because you... Have, you, you have to use what you're confident 
Yeah, yeah. You have faith that you you know what you need to do to catch a fish, right? But here's the thing. What brings you more joy than anything else? It's actually landing a fish, right? Not just trying to land a fish, all right? Now, I agree there's, there's no such thing as a bad day fishing, usually. Maybe here, a little cold and raining. But having said, the ultimate joy comes from landing the fish, right? That's the encouragement. Why? Because it's a proof that you actually do know what you're doing and actually it's good and right okay and so likewise in the same way our testimonies are super encouraging because they're the proof that following jesus and everything entails is good and right when we see it that's the proof okay and so we want to be those that share our testimonies with people what's god's doing in our life not just when you were saved all the time and so he shares his testimony they're glorifying god and it says and they said to him you see brother how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? Basically, there's tons of believers now, thousands of them in Jerusalem that have gotten saved since the, 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 the apostles, the early church leadership first got baptized in the Holy Spirit and they started preaching the gospel, okay? So there's lots of them. But here's the thing. I want you to know this. It says they are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So even though the leadership, super excited at what God's doing uh, amongst the Gentiles, they knew that the believers in Jerusalem were made up mainly of Jewish people that had kind of come out of Jewish religion and had believed in Jesus and gotten saved. But many of them, still followed the rituals and the traditions of the Jewish law, their customs, if you will, that we find in the Old Testament, though they didn't have to anymore as Christians. Technically, they didn't have to do them, but many of them chose to. Jesus had died for the Jews, and through their faith, they had a relationship with him, but they were having a hard time entering into that relationship with him because they were more focused on the things that were meant to point them to God instead of letting those things actually draw them into that relationship with God, okay? In essence, they were having a hard time breaking free of religion and entering into that close relationship God wanted them to have through their faith in Jesus, right? And this same thing, again, we can struggle with if we start to mistakenly think that like the things that we're told in the Bible to do to stay close to God, like reading your Bible, going to church, hanging around other believers, um, praying, all good things, all right? But those things in themselves, if that's our focus, then we just start checking boxes. We get zealous for those things instead of God himself when really those activities are meant to keep you close to God so you're close in a close relationship with him, all right? It's not the activities in themselves that are keeping you good with God. They're keeping you, they're meant to keep you looking at God and staying close to God so you know what he has for you and to keep you zealous for God himself, not those activities, all right? That's not where our focus is supposed to be. And amongst the Jewish believers, there's rumors circulating that Paul had basically been telling people that got saved, Jews specifically, if you get saved, forget about your Jewish roots. Don't take part in this stuff anymore. It's not good for you. And in a sense, they were, they, were, they were under the impression, mistakenly, 
that Paul had become anti-Jewish, which isn't accurate. As here's the thing. Paul never taught that the law in itself was bad. He actually taught it was good. But what he pointed out to them was, how many of you have been able to keep the law perfectly? Because that's the whole point of the law is to show us the law being what's in the Old Testament, what God says is good and what's not good. The point of it isn't to save you. The point of it is to show you that no matter how good you think you are, you can't be perfect. And that's what it is required to have a relationship with the perfect God of this universe. He can't be perfect and not be just. And if you have any sin in your life, a just God has to deal with that sin. And so you can't be perfect in your own power. And anyone here that would think that you're just being prideful and arrogant because not one of us here should be able to say that we've never done anything wrong. Right? Right? None of us. Okay? So that means you have somebody has to come along and be able to do what you can never do and to save you from your sin. If you can't be with God unless you're perfectly right, something had to be done to make you perfectly right in God's eyes. And that thing was done by God himself in sending his son, Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh and could live a perfect life because we could never could on this earth and die a sinner's death on that cross, not for your sin or not for his sin. He didn't do anything wrong, but for your sin and my sin. Jesus did that for us, paid that price that was required of our sin, that just price it deserved so that we, through our faith and acknowledging that and our need for Jesus to save us, we could be forgiven of our sin. That's what Paul preached. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's why those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus get to spend eternity with God now. That's why we can call out to him and know he hears us. That's why we know we're 100% forgiven because of everything Jesus did. Amen? Amen. 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 That's our story. That's our testimony, all right? Now, Paul taught that, okay? He taught that you don't need to do the law anymore. Not that it was bad in itself, but that even if you do these things, don't make the mistake of thinking that there's anything you can do to somehow make yourself better with God because there is nothing you could do. You need to understand that God has done everything and you need him to do everything through Jesus Christ. And that is what makes you right with God. But Paul also taught that people have the liberty to practically worship God differently in Romans 14, 4 through 6, among other places, so long as they didn't think that those individual preferences, like what day they worship God on or what foods they were, were eating, somehow made them any more right with God. He basically points out that you can do these other things in your worship to God, and you have the liberty to be different in these things, as long as you're not thinking that somehow these make you better in God's eyes or better than other believers, if you will. Um, and Paul himself practiced some of these traditions. If you go to Acts 18, 18 through 21, we were just there and he took that vow. Remember a consecration like a Nazarite vow that he willingly chose to do, not because he had to, to be good with God, but something he felt he needed to do for a certain time to, to in, in a sense, set himself apart for God for some reason. Now, those types of practical differences like in worship style, maybe the way people dress. Some people believe in dressing formal to church, some not so formal. Some people believe using instruments. Some don't want to use instruments. Um, some people uh, worship on Saturdays. Some people worship on Sundays. What I'm trying to point out is those differences 
in external ways to worship God. They still exist today. And there's the liberty for people to do those things because at the end of the day, they were unified in the main thing, and that's Jesus Christ. As long as we understand that those things in themselves don't in any way make us any better in God's eyes, all right? If somehow I think that because I dress more formally than somebody else in coming to worship God, that I'm a better Christian, then you have a serious misunderstanding of the gospel, okay? Because here's the thing, there is no better than the blood of Jesus, all right? We couldn't do anything to make ourselves better. So therefore, it is impossible for us to be better in God's eyes than anyone else that have placed their faith in Jesus. As I often say, before you believe in Jesus, you are as worse off as you could ever be. And we're all in the same boat. We're all wretched. Because as it says in the word, if you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Through your faith in Jesus, in God's eyes, you're as perfect as you could ever be because it's based on what he did on the cross, okay? And that's important to understand. You couldn't be any better, all right? You're practically a work in progress, but as far as God's concerned, you're, 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 you're as perfect as you could ever be. And that's the way we're called to look at each other, okay? And so when we're, when we're in a sense, expecting people to live up to subjective preferences that are based just off of what like we like or what we don't like, that don't have like biblical founding without like making presumptions, if you will, or whatnot, then we're in a sense pressing our legalism or being legalistic and we're putting that on other people, which is not the way we're supposed to be. And in a sense, this is what the church leadership is going to want to do with Paul. Instead of being loving towards him, which he's going to be in a hard situation here soon, they should be, They're going to be legalistic and they're saying that because people think this of you, we want you to conform to what they're doing so that they, in a sense, think you holier than you are. Okay, so it goes on to say in verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So Jerusalem church leadership, they want Paul to join these four men who are under some sort of vow of consecration. This is probably like the Nazarite vow that Paul was willingly under in Acts 18. And if you guys are familiar with the Old Testament, it talks about that in number six. We're not six. We're not going to go through it today, but basically they take a vow to separate themselves to God, kind of like fasting, like this, we're just going to focus on God for a time. We're not going to cut our hair. We're not going to eat anything from the vine. We're not going to go near anything dead. Those were kind of the three main things. And then at the end of this vow, we'll go to the temple. We'll worship for a week. We'll cut our hair, offer a bunch of uh, Thanksgiving offerings and sacrifices. And, and, and in a sense, that's how they would purify themselves coming out of this time of separation. And so the leadership, they say, Paul, we want you to do what these guys are doing with them. And we want you to even pay for some of the stuff like their haircuts or whatnot. So everyone just sees that you're really okay with this. You know, that you're like everyone else. You're just kind of following the same traditions and rules and you don't have any issues with that. And it says in verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from 
blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So the church leadership here, what we see is that they had a different view of Jewish people that were saved versus Gentiles because what they're telling Paul is we don't expect the same thing for Gentiles that would have no upbringing in the Jewish law. We, we don't expect them to follow these things. But here's a letter that we're going to send with you because there are some things that we're asking these guys to do too. One of them was abstaining from food that had been sacrificed to idols or still had blood in it and, or had been strangled to death. All those things under the law would have been considered sin from the Jewish people. To a Gentile, it would have been nothing because like they, they did that stuff commonplace. It wasn't an issue for them. So even after they were saved, they probably still do those things knowing that they didn't affect their salvation and it could offend Jewish brothers and sisters. So they're saying, forsake the liberty to do these things for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in Christ that might stumble, okay? And then as far as forsaking sexual immorality, that was something that was pretty common with Gentiles. And so that is, in fact, was a sin. And they're saying, don't keep doing this once you're saved because it's not good for you. God actually says so. And then it says in verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering uh, presented for each one of them. So Paul submits to the church leadership here. He agrees to do what they're asking him to do. But I want to make this clear from the very beginning. It wasn't because he was being legalistic or that he thought he had to do this to make himself better with Jesus. The reason he did this, he actually tells us in 1 Corinthians 9.20. He says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. That's the reason. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I'm not subject to the law or I don't have to follow this anymore. I did this so I could bring Christ to those who were under the law. So in essence, what he's saying is that I don't have to do this, but I'm more than willing to, because if this is what allows me to share Jesus with my Jewish brothers and sisters, then I'll do it. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I'm saved. I'm right. I can, I can, I can go along with this so that I have the opportunity to minister to people because that's ultimately what God has called me to do. And that's what I want to do. And I'm willing to do whatever so long as I'm not sinning to do that. And the other thing to note here is this offering that they would be giving in the temple mentioned in verse 26. Um, it's not an offering of sacrifice or atonement. It's an offering of thanksgiving that would come with that consecration. That's important to understand because it's not like he's saying that there's something else that needs to be done for a sin to be paid for. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's not promoting justification by works, but he's just going, he's agreeing to go along with this ritual so that he has a chance to tell his brothers and sisters in Christ or his brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters about Jesus. And this is something hopefully that all of us, to some degree in our lives, we're willing to do with our people in our lives, our family, our friends, our neighbors that we want to share Jesus with. Hopefully we have this mindset of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.22 where he says, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. Now again, that doesn't mean that you're partaking in sin, but it means that if I need to go and do something like, let's say you're somebody that's not fond of fishing. I don't know how that can exist, but let's say you are, all right? But, yeah, yep, there is. All different level of maturity, right? And All right, let's say you're not fond of that. 
But you have somebody that's a neighbor that you've been wanting to share Jesus with for a long time, and you know they are fond of it, all right? So you're willing to take them with you or to go fishing with them, even though you might hate it because you know that it could lead to the opportunity to have some good quality time and talk about Jesus. That's kind of the idea. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he was willing to do, okay? And um, it goes on to say in verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people or against the Jews and the law in this place, that being the temple. Basically, they're accusing Paul of being anti-Semitic here. Like basically, this guy hates Jews. Man, he hates the temple, he hates the law, he hates everything about us. And it says, that, uh, going on in verse 28, Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in this city. And they supposed or assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. And they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. So... Whereas if you guys are familiar with the temple, there was these outer courts of the temple where basically Jews and Gentiles could be there. But past that point, there was actually a place called the court of the Gentiles. Past that, you couldn't go any further into the temple if you were a non-Jewish person. Basically, there was a sign written in Greek and Latin that said, no foreigner may enter within this the, within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. Basically, if you go past this point and you're not supposed to, you can be, it's like those signs that say like, violators, trespassers will be shot, like, and it's your fault. Like that, that's in essence what it's saying, all right? You go past here, you're gonna die if you're a Gentile. So Paul, he's in the temple. He's completing these purification right, uh, practices for this vow with these other Jewish people that the leadership sent him with. And what happens is some people start to recognize him as this guy that the rumors going around are he's anti-Jewish. And they're like, there's that guy, he's right here. And so, um, and they start accusing him in front of everyone. And even worse, they they mistakenly or purposely just make a, a, a bad assumption that one of those guys with him or one of the, gentiles that he comes into town with and they're like he even had the nerve to bring a gentile into the inner courts of the temple where they weren't supposed to be all right and this ensuing riot happens where they basically seize him the whole city is rushing upon the temple and they and they pull him out of there and it says in verse 31 and as they were seeking to kill him word came to the tribune of the cohort that all jerusalem was in confusion and he at once took soldiers and centurions and round down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Okay, so at the temple, again, if you're familiar with it at all, the Romans 
were in control of Jerusalem at this point, most of Israel. And they had this, what was called the, the Fortress Antonia or the Tower of Antonia, which was like a Roman uh, structure that was built in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. And they would have like the barracks there. They'd have like 500 Roman soldiers there. And it was in a strategic point where they could kind of keep a lookout on everything that was going on at the temple to make sure that there was no nothing out of order. And so what they see is they're looking down and they see this crazy ruckus. They see this riot. They see everyone just pulling somebody out of the temple. They see the whole city kind of rushing. And, and, and so they rush down there to see what's going on. And they find this guy being beat up by the crowd. And so they get in there to stop him and they arrest him based for his own protection and try to stop this riot that was going on. And they end up bounding him with two chains, which means he basically was handcuffed to a soldier on either side, which if you guys remember the prophecy given by Agabus in verse 11, this is, it comes to pass. And then the soldiers, they're even having to carry him at one point because the crowd is so violently trying to get at him and kill him that they're they're carrying him, it says, up the stairs, up to the barracks or up to the jail. And they're yelling the whole time, away with him, which is another way of saying basically kill him. And it should sound somewhat familiar because who did they do that for originally? Yes, right. When Pilate came and, and presented Jesus and said, behold, your king, they responded, they responded in John 19, 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So here the same crowd that rejected Jesus is now rejecting his servant, Paul. And inevitably, it just made me think of how we have to understand that whenever you're presenting Jesus to people, when you're telling people the good news, how many of you had somebody that didn't want to hear it? All right. Maybe they just don't want to hear it at all. Maybe they're like, yeah, I'm not interested in that. Maybe they're a little more violent in a response, like to, to like or aggressive to, to you telling them. But all that to say is you guys have to remember that's normal. OK, just like it is right here. Jesus told us in John fifteen eighteen through 20, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And what I think is important to understand, and Jesus alludes to this in Luke ten sixteen is that, and he talked about in that other verse too, is that when people reject you for telling them about Jesus, you don't need to take that personally because it's not really you that they're upset with. They're upset with God and they're refusing to believe in who the one and only true God is. Amen? So it's not personally against you. And as I often say, God's a big enough boy to take care of himself. They can take it up with the Lord. You don't have to defend him in any way, all right? But you're simply just telling them what is meant to be good news for them because it's, it can produce the same blessedness in their lives as it has in yours. And whether they receive it or not is completely up to them. And we just pray and trust God with that, amen? So all that to say, all right, I'm gonna end there. And I just, there's one thing that struck out to me as I'm reading through this, all right? Because here Paul comes into town and people are stoked, right? He's telling them all God's done for them. And the leadership's just, it says they're glorifying God. They're praising God at hearing all the, Gent, at all the Gentiles that were saved and stuff. And then they go and they say, okay, but here's, the, here's this rumor going around about you. That you're not really down with the Jews continuing on and in, in living according to the law. 
living according to these traditions and stuff. So we want you to kind of go and just do what they're doing so that they see that you're really not against these things. And Paul's willing to do it. Um, He goes, and then the result of that is a riot happens. He gets beaten up. He gets arrested. And best we can tell, looking at the passage, unless it's not written here, I don't see the church or anyone else coming to his aid in any way. I don't see them coming to defend him. I don't see them coming just to encourage him. I don't see them just trying to be there with him. You don't see the church anywhere there while he's going through all this. And it'd be reasonable to think that a lot of this is because of the leadership telling him to go do this in the first place, right? Asking him to go and do something that really wasn't necessary for his faith, but in essence, just to appease their legalism. Just do this for the sake of others, which he was more than willing to do. But that led to all this turmoil in his life, and you don't see them there to support him through it. And honestly, as I was reading that, I was just thinking that maybe that inaction on their part is directly related to where the focus of a lot of this Jerusalem church appeared to be at this time because their focus is on religion rather than their relationship with God. And what happens is, or at least from what I can tell, that's what it appears to be because they're focused on do this and don't do that and you need to be doing this and not doing that. And what happens is when our focuses on those things all our time and energy goes into those tradition traditions or rituals or trying to do them just trying to checking boxes rather than devoting ourselves to actually be doing what god wants you to be doing which is not being legalistic towards others but being loving towards others all right we end up loving legalism rather than loving each other and the result is you become ineffective for god in your life which it looks like the church is here, right? Because they're focused on what Paul isn't doing. And again, these are things that he didn't have to be doing. And it sounds like they even acknowledge that, well, yeah, you don't have to be doing these things. But these people around here are really focused on these these traditions, like getting circumcised and doing these rituals. So we want you to, we want you to show that that's okay. They're focused on that. And then when the time comes where Paul's going through something hard and he needs somebody there to love him and encourage him and support him, they're nowhere to be found. And as I said in the very beginning, that's how people know we're Jesus' disciples. When we're loving, not busy doing things, but we're busy loving people. Amen? And here's the thing. When we're like that, in effect, we don't look any different than the rest of the world. Really, and in, in, in some instances, you might look even worse in the world because who is it that comes to the rescue of Paul here? Not the Christians, but the Romans are the ones that end up saving him from being killed, okay? You see, when we're zealous for the law, like the believers in the Jerusalem church were here in verse 20, we can tend to act like cops where we're looking for people And looking at them and what's wrong in their life, these Christians aren't doing this right. They're they're doing this right, but this is not good. And and we we kind of look in like 
you know, because we're, we're officers of the law that, you know, like, I wish they just, if they just did this, then they'd get it together like me. They'd be better than me, or they'd be as good as me. Like the believers in Jerusalem were doing with their misconceptions about, about Paul and sense. But if we're zealous for Jesus, like Paul was, instead of acting like cops, you tend to act like a paramedic. You see people that are hurting, that need help. And you go to their aid, even if it means that something might bad happen to you, because that's what Paul was doing, even in being willing to go along with what they were asking him to do. His heart was for the people. Well, I'll do it if it means that I get to preach to them. If, I, if, if it opens up a door where I can talk to them about the word, teach them the word, help them in their walk with the Lord. So be it. I'll do that. Yeah, I could get beat up. I know they don't like me here at the temple or whatever, but I'll, I'll go whatever see he was looking to love people because his focus was in the right place and 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 along with that it doesn't mean you don't address it i'm not i'm not talking about like some people wrongly just say well can't we're just all saved by jesus we'll let people just live their lives no if there's sin in somebody's life the most loving thing you can do is address it is help them with it but it's not out of condemnation or thinking you're better because you realize that I'm worse than you are. I'm just saved by God's grace and I'm so thankful and, and he's helped me conquer these sins and, and made my life so much better. So I'm just here. I want to help you with that. It's for their betterment. It's out of compassion, out of care, out of love. All right. It's just out of the right heart. Now, because some people argue with this. Well, is it wrong? Should I be a cop for Jesus? Should I be a paramedic for Jesus. And you know, the reality is throughout our lives, we can be either or. We can go back and forth. Like I said, it depends where you're, you're zealous for, where your focus is. Is it on just doing, doing, doing? Or is it on your relationship with Jesus? But really, if you're trying to figure out what you should be, you should just look to who? Jesus, right? And was he a cop or was he a paramedic? He was a paramedic. Yeah, there's no question. And he actually tells us in a whole passage in Luke 10, uh, 30 through 37. I'm going to read this. The worship team can come up here. It says, Jesus, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. And they stripped him of his clothes and beat him up, left him half dead besides the road. And by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, and he also passed by on the other side. So here's these guys that are supposed to be godly. They're supposed to represent God accurately, to know his compassion for people. And they see this guy laying on the side of the road. Who knows what they were thinking? Probably this oh, guy probably got what he deserved. I'm, I'm, I'm better than that guy. I don't have time to deal with him. So they just leave him there. Then it says in verse 33, then a despised Samaritan, somebody the Jews hated, had no business for his own benefit to help this guy. It says then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine, bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling them, take care of this man. If his bill runs high than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And Jesus asked this, this, this 
religious guy who's asking him, who's my neighbor? He says, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. That's how Jesus wants us to be. Amen. But we can't be that way unless we're zealous for the right things, unless you're zealous for him. If you're zealous for just doing the bare minimum, just checking the boxes, just doing what in our minds a Christian should look like, it's going to be very tedious following Jesus. It's going to be burdensome. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be exciting. It's going to be very dry. And you're not always going to feel like doing it, probably most of the time. But if you're zealous for the relationship that God has won you through his son's death on the cross, if that's your desire to just know Jesus to an even greater degree, to read his word so you can understand him, know how he feels about you, to know what his plans are for you, and you see to an even greater degree his love and his goodness You can't help but be like him to others in your own life. Everything has to flow from the cross. Like we talked about last week. Your faithfulness, that's where it starts and ends. It's always the cross. It's remembering God and his goodness in your life and his love for you. And we and and, and like I said, we can we can drift from that. We can we can lose focus of that so easily. And it can get so caught up in just the do, do, doing stuff when all that stuff is good for us, but it's meant to keep us focused in the right direction. And that is staying close to Jesus. It in itself is not what keeps us close to Jesus. It's not what keeps us good for him. It's the fact that he's done everything for you. So you're always going to be good with him for all eternity. And you have to doubt that this should make you want to do whatever he tells you. Amen. So I just kind of challenge you. Like I said, we can be, we can go back and forth, but it's good to self-examine your own life. And just, am I more of a cop right now for the Lord? Or am I a paramedic? Do I have the right mindset? And then kind of, you know, if, if you feel like you are, you're just kind of critical. You're always looking at people and what they're doing wrong and stuff. Then it's kind of checking yourself. Am, am I zealous for the right things? Am I really focused on my relationship with Jesus? Or am I, am I just focused on doing the stuff and somehow thinking that because I'm doing the stuff, I'm better than other people? And the best way to do that, if if you find yourself in that place, the best thing to do is go to the cross. Remember how wretched you were, how wretched I am, remembering that and remembering how God saved you from all that. Remember what your life looked like before you came into it. Know what it looks like now. You may not be where you want to be, but you're so much further than where you were then. And that's because of God. And he's not done. He's going to finish the work that he started, like it says in Philippians. But I look at the destruction that was in my life because of my wretchedness. And I'm so thankful for where I am right now. And it's all by God's grace. 
And I'm looking at all the good things in my life, my family, my church, and that's all by God's grace. And that makes me zealous for Jesus. I just, as we prayed in the beginning, I just, I I want every bit of my life to be surrendered to him. I don't want to miss out on anything he has for me. So we're going to sing a song. I'm going to ask you guys to get the communion elements. Hold on to them. We're going to do them together at the end as a church family. But during this time of worship, you can praise him if you want. But I also encourage you just to meditate on what God has done in your life, where he's brought you from, what he's saved you out of, what he's healed you from. All the things that he's done for you. So that you can glorify him. All your testimony. Because as I said, that, that's what will produce that, that zealousness for the right thing. Because all of that isn't because of you or me. It's all because of him. Amen? Amen. Lord God, be with us in this time. Father, I pray even now that you would give us a fresh revelation of the cross. We might have been saved for 40 years. I just pray it would be like the first day, that first day that we understood our need for you to save us from your sins and knowing that you did, that you were willing, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. I pray, Lord, right now. And for anyone here that hasn't made that that declaration of their need for you to save them, that hasn't repented, is that word means turning from their sin and turning toward you to save them. I pray today would be the day they do that. I pray that they would, in humility, acknowledge their need to for you to forgive them and to save them. And that they may have come here without a relationship with you, but they leave here knowing you personally and following you the rest of their lives right into the next life into eternity, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you-